Chapter 30 Young Folks' History of the American Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon. GaryBohannon.com. Young Folks' History of the American Revolution by Everett Tomlinson. The Struggle in the South. In the closing years of the Revolution, although the suffering and trials of the people in the northern colonies became steadily more intense, the most of the active fighting was done in the South. The British had tried to conquer the New England people, and had failed. They then tried to overcome the men of the Middle States, but found them as determined in their resistance to King George as the Yankees had been. The very victories the armies of the King had won instead of crushing the spirits of the people, had, to all appearances, only made them more determined to fight on to the end. The British were, however, just as strong as the Americans in their unwillingness to abandon the contest into which they had entered, and now they transferred their efforts to the South, hoping that they might accomplish there what they had failed to bring to pass in the North. The scattered hamlets and the fact that there were but few cities in the South and the hope that the slaves might be induced to rise against their masters were strong inducements of themselves, as well as the fact that there was a large number of Tories in some of the southern states. The intensity of the feeling among the men of the South, no matter whether they were Tories or Whigs, seemed to increase the bitterness of the struggle, and although the British were victorious in most of those battles, the very fact of the defeat served only to rouse the anger and increase the zeal of the men who were fighting for their freedom. The natural result of all these things was that the war in the South became a terrible struggle, in which cruelty, robbery, and murder played so important a part that the record of those years reads more like that of a work of brigands and highwaymen than it does like that of a sober struggle between men of the same race. The trouble began in the autumn of 1778, when two bodies of Tories and refugees advancing swiftly and unexpectedly from East Florida into Georgia, one party moving by boats toward Sunbury, while the other marched overland upon the little garrison at Midway. When the enemy arrived at Sunbury, they summoned Colonel McIntosh, who was in command there, to surrender but the doughty colonel sent back the messenger with the rough statement that, quote, if the redcoats wanted the place, they must come and take it, unquote. Not thinking they were in sufficient force to do this, and perhaps not expecting such a reply to their summons, the refugees, like the famous man who marched up the hill and then marched down again, decided to return to the place from which they had come. The other party, though constantly annoyed by the fire of the militia that followed them, at last arrived at the Ogeechee River, where they found two hundred Continentals waiting and ready to dispute their passage. Then they too turned back when there came a report of a force of angry patriots already on the way from South Carolina. But being strong enough, they stopped at Midway, burned every house there, destroyed the crops, and carried away all the Negroes, horses, and valuables upon which they could lay their hands, while the frightened planters fled to South Carolina, glad to have escaped with their lives. General Robert Howe, the leader of the Patriot forces, determined to retaliate, and accordingly sent to St. Augustine a force of 2,000 men he had assembled, resolved to carry the war into the enemy's country. 
No sooner, however, had he approached the town than a terrible sickness broke out among his soldiers, and he was obliged to retreat at once in order to save his men from a peril worse than that of bullets. The British commander-in-chief now decided to move actively against the South, and resolved that Savannah should be the first place to fall into his hands. Accordingly, he ordered General Prevost, who was in command of East Florida, to advance with his men upon Savannah, and at the same time, Colonel Campbell was to come from New York with a force of 2,500 men whom Sir Hyde Parker was to carry to the south on his fleet. On December 23rd, the fleet arrived in the river, and six days afterward, with little or no difficulty, the Redcoats were landed. General Robert Howe was the sturdy American leader who was to try to defend and protect Georgia, but he had only a small force of about 600 Continentals and perhaps 250 militia to assist him. However, not the least dismayed by the great odds, he with his men took a very excellent position, which was surrounded on every side, save one, by the river or by deep and impassable swamps. And believing that his little force was strong enough to keep back an enemy that could approach his position only on the front, he awaited the issue with considerable confidence. His plans were all upset, however, by the treachery of a negro slave who, knowing of a path that led through the swamp to the rear of the place held by the Americans, informed the British of the approach, and himself led the way for the Redcoats, who followed him while their companions pretended to make an attack in front. The scheme was very successful, and the Americans, though they fought desperately, were caught in the trap and were almost annihilated, for more than one hundred of their men were killed, while 453 became prisoners, and the guns, ammunition, and stores fell into the hands of the victorious and elated Redcoats. The few Continentals who did escape fled into South Carolina, but Georgia was in possession of the British, who now made their headquarters at Ebenezer and Augusta, and from these places sent forth their trusted men to attempt to arouse the Tories of all the adjacent regions. What made the Americans feel even worse was the knowledge that at the very time when Savannah fell, 2,000 true men from North Carolina were marching to aid them. The efforts of the British to summon the Tories to their aid were successful, and several hundred of them, including many of the criminals and desperate men who are ever quick to seize the opportunity which the lawless times of war present, were soon under the command of Colonel Boyd, marching along the western border, where they were committing crimes and doing deeds that cannot be described. Their actions served to rouse the Whigs still more, and brave Colonel Pickens, with a band of picked men from the District of 96, fell upon the banditti, for they were nothing less, and after a fight that lasted almost an hour, succeeded in driving them from the field, leaving their leader and forty men dead behind them. Aware of the British designs, General Lincoln had been placed in command of the American troops, and after receiving the little remnant of Howe's force and being reinforced by the North Carolina men, he had about 2,500 under him. At the same time, the British were strengthened by the arrival of redcoats from St. Augustine, and, elated by their easy conquest of Savannah, planned an expedition against Port Royal Island. There they landed, February 3, 1779, but Moultrie was there to meet them, and so savagely did he and his men resist that the redcoats, after losing nearly all their officers and a large number of men, were completely routed. These successes were not great, but they were encouraging, 
and surely encouragement was needed, for little but defeat was to be faced for some time to come. The anger of the Whigs had been so aroused by the action of the Tories that seventy of the latter were condemned to death, though on sober second thought only five of the leaders were executed. Perhaps if they had stopped for a third thought, no one would have been so treated, for about all that was accomplished was to increase the hatred already almost too bitter to be borne. As the British had been extending their posts up the river, Lincoln ordered General Ashe with 1,500 of the North Carolina militia and the few that were left of the Georgia Continentals to advance upon that part of the country. When Ashe went into camp at Briar Creek, General Prevost determined to attack him. Pretending that he was about to advance upon Charleston, and by the trick preventing Lincoln from coming to the aid of his comrade, and at the same time leading Ashe to believe that he was about to attack him in front, he swiftly crossed Briar Creek with a large force of men, and gaining the rear of the Americans, fell upon them with great fury. The American militia were so frightened that they fled without firing a shot. For a time the hardy Continentals stood their ground, but what could they do against so many? In a brief time three hundred of them were shot or prisoners, and only about four hundred fifty made their way back to join Lincoln, for the most of the militia that escaped had fled to their homes. Although he had lost about one quarter of his little army, Lincoln was not ready to give up. Had he not been in the army that had beaten boastful John Burgoyne? He had seen too much to be discouraged now, and after his little army had been somewhat strengthened by the coming of the reinforcements, he left one thousand to garrison the camps, and with the four thousand now set forth late in April 1779 to attempt to regain what had been lost. General Prevost, with twenty-four hundred redcoats and many Indians, set forth from his camp, and as Moultrie, who was to oppose him, was not able to check the advance, he retired towards Charleston, burning or destroying every bridge as he went. Thus, having been delayed, when Prevost appeared before Charleston and demanded the surrender of the town, the people were somewhat prepared to resist, and aware as they were that Lincoln's army was coming to their aid, held out until the American general was near. When the British, fearful that they would be caught between the two fires, crossed the Ashley and went into camp on some of the nearby islands. Lincoln did not desire a battle, for he was fearful his militia would not stand. When Prevost started back toward Savannah, Lincoln attempted to take the British post at Stono Ferry, but his plan failed and 179 of the 1,200 Americans engaged in the attempt were lost. With the remainder of his army, Lincoln withdrew to Sheldon, near Beaufort, while the Redcoats hastened back to Savannah, and nothing of importance had been accomplished. So matters remained, each army watching the other, until September, when the French Count d'Estaing, with his fleet of twenty sail of the line, two fifty-gun ships, and eleven frigates arrived. His coming put fresh courage into the hearts of the struggling patriots, though they were again to find that their boasted allies were little to be depended upon, and as soon as possible, after they came, Lincoln prepared to march upon Savannah. Many of the militia had rallied at the call of Lincoln, but the British in Savannah, well aware of what was going on, had been working night and day to strengthen their defenses. And to make matters still worse, after D'Estaing had demanded a surrender of the place, 
During the 24 hours grace he had granted, about 800 men from Beaufort succeeded in making their way into the town and joined the redcoats. Then Prevost declared that he would defend Savannah to the very last. It was October 4th when the batteries of the besiegers opened upon the town, but when several days passed and no signs of a surrender appeared, the eager-hearted and overconfident militia clamored for an assault to be made. The attacking party seemed to be very strong, for it had 3,500 French troops, some 600 Continentals, and about 350 militia, and for a time they did make a great fight, but at last they were beaten back, after more than 600 of the French soldiers had been killed or wounded, and more than 240 of the Americans had been lost. It was in this attack that Count Pulaski, the Polish noble who had come to fight for the freedom of the colonies, fell, and his death, as well as the terrible losses of the troops, so disheartened the militia that the most of them went back to their homes, and Destang with his troops and fleet set sail from the western world. It was a very discouraging outlook for the southern patriots, but they were yet to learn that their best promise of success lay not in attempting to meet the well-drilled soldiers of King George in the open field, but in the swift and daring attacks made by their own smaller bands. Indeed, at this very time, while Savannah was being besieged, Colonel John White, with only six men as bold as he, captured five British armed vessels, which had anchored in the Ogeechee River, about 25 miles from Savannah. In the night of September 30th, he kindled fires at various places along the bank, and by pretending that there was a large encampment there, frightened the men into surrendering to save themselves from what they thought to be an overwhelming attack. In this manner, he secured about 140 British prisoners. And there was need of such boldness, for in the preceding May about 2,000 soldiers and 500 Marines had been sent by Clinton to Portsmouth, and such of the vessels there as the Americans could not burn fell into the hands of the Redcoats. Elated by their easy success, the British had then gone on to Suffolk, Kent's Landing, Gosport, Tanner's Creek, and other places, burning and plundering on their way and it is said that before the raid was ended, and the marauding redcoats had returned to New York, 130 of the little American vessels had been seized or destroyed by them. As soon as Sir Henry Clinton in New York learned that Destang had really departed from America, he decided to go south himself, and assist in quickly completing the work which had been so well begun by his forces in Georgia. Accordingly, he left the Hessian General Niphausen in command of the forces in New York, and he himself sailed for the south, but he had a stormy passage. Some of his fleet was lost, his horses were drowned, and when at last, on February 11th, he landed on John's Island, about 30 miles from Charleston, it hardly seemed as if he was ready for work. But he was, nevertheless, and the South Carolina Assembly broke up as soon as he came, and General Lincoln, who with the little remnant of his army had returned to Charleston, began to labor hard to strengthen the defenses of that town. Many, six hundred, of the Negro slaves were set at work, and Lincoln, who was expecting reinforcements from the North, now began to pluck up heart. Clinton had no mind to wait, however, and in a few days he moved up nearer the town, and the little fleet of American boats, unable to resist such a force as Sir Henry had, was speedily divested of its guns which were taken into the town and added to the defenses there. 
By this time Clinton had sent word to Lincoln that Charleston must be surrendered, that the town was invested by land and sea, and to attempt to hold it would only mean a great and unnecessary loss of life. Lincoln, however, sturdily refused, and then the real tug-of-war began. The lines of the British were steadily drawn tighter. Parties that tried to come to the aid of the Patriots were cut off, and meanwhile 3,000 additional redcoats had come from New York to Clinton's aid. At last, on the 12th of May, 1780, the American general agreed to surrender. Help had not come to him. The guns of the British were creating havoc and suffering, and there was no way of retreat left. To fight on would be murder. Naturally, the Redcoats were delighted over the easy conquest and the fact that the Americans had lost the little army they had in the South. Clinton at once took measures to complete his work. There were many Tories in the state, and they speedily came to the front. Clinton was very fond of proclamations, and he at once began to issue them, promising protection to all Whigs who would return, and also offering many inducements for the Tories to organize and help keep order in the state. The infamous Tarleton was sent out with a force of horse and foot to assist the Tories, and to check the Patriots, who were said to be coming from North Carolina. A force of these was, indeed, on its way, led by Colonel Buford. This band Tarleton met and defeated easily, and after the men had surrendered, his brutal soldiers, with bayonet or sword, killed nearly all the prisoners. Tarleton's quarter became a proverb and did much to rouse and hold the desperate Whigs together, and his dastardly deeds and the raids he made are a lasting disgrace to his king and the cause which he represented. South Carolina was strangely quiet, however, after the fall of Charleston, and Clinton, misled by the calm, decided to leave Cornwallis with 4,000 men in the state while he sailed back to New York to command the army there, and also to keep an eye on the Old Fox, as Washington was called by the Redcoats. The regulars were posted in various parts of South Carolina, and all the enemy felt confident that the region was subdued. The quiet was like that before a storm, not that of despair. Bands of determined men joined their leaders, and the most savage and terrible part of the war followed. At the head of these forces were men like Sumter, Francis Marion, Williams, and others as brave and determined as they. Sumter rallied his men across the line in North Carolina, and when his followers numbered 600, resolved to start on his errand, which was to attack and cut off small detachments of the Redcoats wherever they could be found. He began his work on July 10th at Williamson's Plantation, where he drove off a large force of the British with only about 133 men. Next, with 600 men, he attacked the British at Rocky Mount, but as he had no cannon, he failed to dislodge them. Then at Hanging Rock, he so fiercely attacked the British and Tories posted there that he almost annihilated the regiment known as that of the Prince of Wales. Meanwhile, Congress was resolved to aid and ordered the Maryland and Delaware troops to go to South Carolina. Baron de Kalb had been in command, but as he was a foreigner and not acquainted with the men or the country, it was determined wiser to make Gates the leader, but the little dandy soon proved that he was not large enough for the task. 
When Gates assumed the command July 27, 1780, the army already was in South Carolina, and he decided to advance at once upon the British at Camden. Disregarding the advice given him, he led the way through a barren region that did not seem to produce much except Tories, and though some of the Virginia militia joined him, their presence only served to decrease the supplies, and starvation became a common word in the camps. When Gates halted on the 13th of August, about 13 miles from Camden, his forces numbered about 3,600 men. Cornwallis himself was at Camden with about 2,000 men, and as many of his soldiers were sick, at first, particularly as the Whigs of the region had risen at the coming of Gates, he did not desire to chance a battle. But to retreat would be worse, so he decided to fight, and on the night of the 15th led his forces out of Camden, hoping to surprise Gates in the darkness. The American general, however, had sent away his sick and wounded, and at that very time was advancing toward what he thought was a better position. In the darkness the two armies met, each almost as surprised as the other. At first the American militia began to give way, but their courage returned, and until morning both armies held their ground, and then a fearful struggle began. When the Redcoats advanced with a loud shout, the frightened Virginia militia fled, but the Continentals held their ground and fought desperately, and even with a prospect of success. But after the flight of their friends, they were soon surrounded, and as they broke, the cruel Tarleton chased them for more than twenty miles with his cavalry. Nearly three hundred American prisoners were brought back to Camden, and the Patriots had lost all their baggage, artillery, and field pieces as well. And among the many killed was Baron de Kalb. Sumter, who seemed to be always everywhere before the Battle of Camden, had sent word to Gates that he had found out that a large convoy of supplies for the British was on its way from Charleston to Camden, and declared that if Gates would send him four hundred men, he could and would capture it. Gates did as he was requested, and Sumter promptly took all the stores and three hundred prisoners as well. But hearing that Gates had been defeated at Camden, he began to retreat up the Watry with his spoil. Tarleton's legion was sent after him, and at Fishing Creek, near Catawba Ford, rode straight into the camp before Sumter could do anything to defend himself. Tarleton easily retook the stores, and almost as easily killed or wounded more than three hundred of the men, seized all the artillery, and drove the soldiers he could not shoot into flight. Gates, meanwhile, had rallied what was left of his army at Hillsborough, but so many of Cornwallis's soldiers were ill that the British general dared not follow up his victory, which was extremely fortunate for Gates. Angry at the rising of the Whigs, the British commander sent forth some new proclamations and ordered that every militiaman who had borne arms against the British and afterward joined the Americans should be put to death. His order only served to make the desperate patriots still more determined, and if they must die, they resolved to make their death costly to the Redcoats. Colonel Ferguson had been ordered by Cornwallis to cut off a force which Colonel Clark had led against the fort known as 96, and while the British officer was trying to do what he had been told to do, the patriots from the mountains of Virginia and North Carolina had been rallying, and now were marching upon Ferguson himself. The British colonel heard of their coming, and started swiftly for Charlotte, 
North Carolina, where Cornwallis and his army were. The militia were so rapidly increasing in numbers, however, that soon there were three thousand of them, of whom sixteen hundred were mounted and were experts with the rifle. With all Ferguson's efforts, he could not get away, so taking what he thought to be a good position at King's Mountain, he waited for the Whigs to come. And they came. In three divisions they fell upon the Redcoats, and though the British fought desperately and with bayonets for an hour, Ferguson at last was killed, and then his men quickly surrendered. So fifteen hundred stand of arms and eight hundred prisoners fell into the hands of the Americans, while one hundred fifty Redcoats lay dead upon the field, and as many more were wounded. The loss of the Americans was small, although some of their best officers fell in the fight. King's Mountain became a rallying cry from that day. Sumter, although his force had been scattered by the savage legion of Tarleton, was in no wise discouraged. Soon he had another band of hardy followers, and, by constantly changing his position, at one time he would be heard of at the Broad River, then at the Ennery, then again at the Tiger. Force after force was sent against him, but Sumter not only managed to escape, but even drove Tarleton from the field when the brutal leader was sent to attack him. Francis Marion and other leaders were also engaged in a similar line of work. Daring and fearless, they would dash from their hiding places upon some detachment of the Redcoats or a band with stores, and the Redcoats lived in a state of perpetual uncertainty, if not of fear, not knowing where next or upon whom these silent bands would fall. If South Carolina was subdued, as Clinton declared it to be, it certainly had a very strange manner of showing it. When Cornwallis heard of the defeat at King's Mountain, he withdrew with his troops into South Carolina, but when he went into winter quarters, to his surprise and disgust he discovered that Sumter and Marion and the various other marauders had not the slightest intention of following his very excellent example, for not one jot did they abate their midnight rides or raids. End of chapter 30